Which Jesus are you looking for? A couple of days we'll be uh, here celebrating Christmas Eve, 5.30, 7 o'clock services. We'll be with our families this week, hopefully. We'll be uh, exchanging gifts, remembering Jesus, but which Jesus? Which Jesus? You got to get the right Jesus, you know. It's not enough to simply say, well, I, you know, I like to think of Jesus as, well, you can be sincere in that. You can also be sincerely wrong. You can say, well, I like to think about the Randy who is not paying on the mortgage and who has another spouse and who's that, but you won't be the right Randy because we're talking about me here. Which Jesus are you looking for? Who's the real Jesus? That's really what the Apostle John uh, is doing as he's writing here 1,900 years ago. He's answering this question. Here's the real Jesus. The real Jesus you need to know because it makes a difference. It's not enough to just to be sincere about whatever Jesus you believe in. See? 1,900 years ago, John's in his 80s now. It's near the end of the first century. And there's some false teaching. There's some bad information going around about the real Jesus. And, and, and I keep talking about this in this series. And you may be wondering, what kind of false teaching are you, are you, are you talking about, Randy? I mean, what do you actually mean? And what I mean is this false teaching with which with, with church historians call Gnosticism. Knowledge, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this belief that, you know, your problem is really not your disobedience from God or your sin. Your problem is just your ignorance. And what you need is you need to be released of your ignorance by finding out some special, spiritual, secret, mystical knowledge. And if you can kind of get that, then you'll be released. And so that's what these false teachers were teaching. And, 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 and it, was, it sounded like this. They would say, well, now there was this guy named Jesus, and he was born a regular guy, a regular dude. But then when he gets into the baptistry, this special, spiritual, esoteric, woo kind of thing came on him. And he sort of became then this philosophical Yoda-like guy who then waltzed around for three and a half years, got himself crucified, and at the crucifixion, the woo left him, and this regular guy then died. And, and it's this woo that you need <laughs> if you're going to know God. And it's special and spiritual and mystical and esoteric, and if, and, if, and if you don't understand it, I can't explain it kind of a thing. Real, real greasy and slippery stuff. I mean, I'm serious. That's the kind of false teaching that was going on. Dividing churches, mind you. Dividing churches. And the Apostle John says, that's not the Jesus I know. No, that's not the Jesus I know. He goes on to talk about who the real Jesus is in 1 John chapter 4. And there's so much that we could discuss here. But, but John says, listen, listen. 1 John 4, 1. I didn't read it, but let's. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, 
Test the spirits. When someone starts talking about Jesus, your eyes need to get up and your antenna needs to go up. What are they saying about Jesus? Not everybody who talks about Jesus is talking about the real Jesus. Test that. So, well, how do we test it? And John says, here's the test. See, here's the test. And, and, and there are two very clear truths that I want us to listen to this morning from John chapter 4 that will help us know with absolute certainty who the real Jesus is. And, and let me tell you why this is important for us here in this room today. You may not have bought into the woo of first century Gnosticism. I, I get that. But all you got to do is turn on cable TV and there's a lot of bad information going around about Jesus. You know, there's the name it and claim it Jesus. There's the health and wealth Jesus. Or there's the, there's the Jesus that you may have grown up with in your home church that, that you, you, you don't sense that he is the son of God who came out of love, but rather that he's just this angry tyrant who's ready to beat you down. You know, and, and you've gotten a bad message from a bad messenger. And it's hard to unlearn that, especially when that bad teaching sinks itself, gets its claws into your soul and your heart. And, and I guess that's one of the things that I, you know, pray about in terms of what goes on here and how we relate with one another is what we're studying about Jesus, are we getting the Jesus who is full of grace and full of truth and that we're seeing him, meeting him face to face. John says, here's how you can know who the real Jesus is. Two crystal clear, incontrovertible truths that you need to know about the real Jesus. And the first truth is this, that the real Jesus is God in the flesh who has come from heaven to earth to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. That's a long sentence, I know. I'll say it again. The real Jesus that John talks about is God who has come in the flesh from heaven to earth to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That's, that's the first truth. That's the real Jesus. Let me just break that down for just a minute, Okay. John says the real Jesus, the real Jesus is God come from heaven to earth in the flesh. 1 John 4, 2 says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There it is. That's it. John, John says, John says, you know, we are from God. He says here in verse 6, we're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. John says, I know. I was there. He came in the flesh. There was none of this woo-hoo stuff. I mean, I saw him sweat. You know, I heard him belch. He came in the flesh, a real human body. He ate. You should have heard him teach. You should have watched him heal people. Raise the dead. John says, I was the first into the empty tomb. I saw God come in the flesh. 
from heaven to earth. Notice it says there in verse two, it doesn't say that Jesus Christ was born, but that he came. He came, meaning he came from somewhere. Though Jesus was born in that Bethlehem manger, his origin was not from Bethlehem, but from heaven itself. And Charles Colson calls this the invasion. Listen to this. God chose to invade planet Earth in the person of his son, the incarnation. God made flesh. He did so to rescue fallen humans. He became human so that we could become holy. He became human so that we could become holy. He came not with the hoofbeat of horses, not with great armies at his command, but in the person of Jesus who had nothing. When he was born, he was born in a borrowed manger. When he rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, he rode on a borrowed donkey. And when he was buried after the cross, it was in a borrowed tomb. Jesus had a true radical message for the poor. He kicked over the tables of the money changers in the temple to signify that the old system of sacrifice, the old meeting place, was out of business. And instead, his body, his person, would be the meeting place between God and people. He was not a white Anglo-Saxon, but an olive-skinned Semite born in the Middle East, a man for all seasons, a suffering servant, not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, willing to bear the sins we keep secret. That's what we're talking about when John says that Jesus was God in the flesh who came from heaven to earth. He was born in Bethlehem, but his origin is in heaven. And then John says to live the life that we should have lived, to live the life that we should have lived. See, see, when, when the reason why God came from heaven to earth was not, not just to show us that he could, but because earth was broken. Broken relationships, broken between us and God, broken between ourselves. And he came, he came to, to live the life we should have lived. To say, here, and he doesn't just, see, God in sending Jesus as God in the flesh just, does not just say, okay, here, read this manual. You'll figure out how to do it. No, no, no. He says, no, I'm going to show you how to speak the way I wanted you to speak all along. How to think the way I wanted you to think all How to relate how I wanted you to relate all along. Just watch Jesus. He's going to do for you what you have not been able to do all along. And I think about a passage of Scripture in Matthew that just uh, really demonstrates this, and it's the temptations of Christ. Now think with me on this. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted. Some of you are familiar with that passage of Scripture. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and then afterwards he was tempted by Satan. And if you recall, Satan takes Jesus, and he's obviously hungry, and it's a supernatural fast. And so he says... Tempts Jesus by turning stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? You should not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Temptation number one. And Satan takes Jesus up to the top of a temple tower and dares to throw him off that the angels will catch him. And Jesus says, no, you shall not test the Lord your God. And then Jesus is taken up to see all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, all this I'll give you if you'll just worship me. And Jesus says, you know, get away. Get out of here, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All right? 
and then Satan flees. And we read that passage of scripture and we think, okay, when I'm tempted, I just need to quote scripture. And that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Whenever you're tempted, do quote scripture. And if the temptation is sexual in nature, quote scripture and flee, you see. But we're missing, we're missing the heartbeat of Matthew chapter 4 if we think that that was written just to give us tactics against temptation. Because you see, if you go back to that passage and you, you rethink it, what's going on there? Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and his responses to Satan were all taken from Israel's wilderness experiences in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. You see what's going on here? The Son of God is appearing as the second Israel. And history is being rolled back as Jesus becomes what Israel was so that he can undo what Israel did. You see, it's like you taking your final exam and failing miserably. And then Jesus showing up later and taking the same exam and passing it cold 100%. And then you get Jesus' A. You say, that's not fair. No, it's grace. And that's what we're talking about when we say that he lived the life that we should have lived. He on Jesus is the new Israel who goes in the same old wilderness, but he passes, and I get his grade. And you may be thinking, okay, well, what's the application for me? What am I supposed to do? There is no application for you. You do nothing because Jesus did it for you, you see. There is something to do. Believe. Trust. Totally depend upon him. That's what there is for you to do. Your, the work you must do is faith. And that's why John says in 1 John 5, 5, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Wow, think about that. I get Jesus A on my transcript. That's good news. The Son of God who came from heaven to earth in the flesh to live the life that I should have lived and then to die the death I should have died. That's in verses 9 and 10. Do you see that there? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There it is. He's the king. He's the king who dies for the kingdom, unlike any king who has ever, ever existed before. You see, most kingdoms will do all that they can to protect their king. Isn't that the unspoken premise in chess? Once the king is gone, the game is over. When the king falls, the kingdom's lost. So you've got to protect the king at all costs. And I can't help but think about uh, Normandy Beach D-Day, June 6, 1944. Did you know that Prime Minister Winston Churchill from England uh, wanted to take a position on one of the battleships in the English Channel while the invasion was going on? He wanted to see it. He thought that was good leadership. He wanted to be there. 
U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower thought it was a bad move. It was a, it was a, he did not want the British Prime Minister potentially dying on his watch. But Winston Churchill would not be persuaded. And so Eisenhower had this dilemma. But here's how he resolved it. <laughs> when it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower went over Churchill's head. He went to King George VI. And then King George went to Winston Churchill. And he told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion on a battleship and thus exhibit good leadership, the king could only conclude then that it was his own duty as king to join him on the battleship. And at that point, Churchill backed off because he was not about to put his king in danger. Our king did just the opposite, church. And this is how we know the real Jesus, the true emperor. With royal courage, he came in the flesh and he surrendered his body to crucifixion. And on the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all of the wrong things we had done. And he would do it atoning for all of our sins. The crown of thorns that was meant to make a mockery of him was, in fact, the royal king proclaiming his death for us. The real Jesus, John says, this is the real Jesus. God in the flesh, come to earth from heaven to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. That's the real Jesus. And you listen for that when someone starts talking about Jesus, you see. We could stop here, you know, um, we could stop here and have a really memorable time in communion now. Um, but if we do, I'm afraid we'll miss an important truth that John wants us to get that is also true about Jesus. If, if we stop right here, then, then I'm afraid that we'll, we'll pick up the, the, the ticket mentality about Christmas. That, that, that the Son of God came as God in the flesh from heaven to earth to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And in doing so, he gives us tickets. Here, there it is. Keep those. Go live your life. And then when you die, show those tickets to God and you'll get to heaven. Okay? All right? And that's not Christmas. Because Christmas... Christmas is not God giving you a ticket for later on. No, 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 that's the wrong. Christmas is God not giving you a ticket, giving you a uniform. He wants you to participate. He wants you to take the court. He wants you to play. We, we, Sarah and I went to the game last night and we saw Mr. Alex Legion take the court to a standing ovation. People were clapping and cheering, and I was clapping and cheering, and I leaned over to Sarah and said, who is this young man? I don't even know who he is. Does he play golf? That's what I wanted to know. You see, Christmas, here it is. Christmas is not just a message to be delivered, but Christmas is a reality that must be demonstrated by a faith active in love. And so, here's the second truth. Here it is. The first truth is that the first truth is that 
Jesus came to die for us. The second truth is that Jesus wants to live through us. He wants to live through us. To live a life of love through us. Isn't that what we see in verses 11 through 19? Oh, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, and we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Then John goes on to say, God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. God in him. Oh, the real Jesus. He not only came to die for us, but he comes to live in us so that he can love through us. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He's a pastor. He says, think, out, think it out. Think it out. The only way for Jesus to get us out of our spiritual poverty and into spiritual riches was to get out of his spiritual riches into spiritual poverty. This should now be the pattern of your life. You give your resources away, your time resources, your treasure resources, your gifts, your talent resources. This should be the pattern of your life. Give your resources away and enter into need so that those in need will be resourced. That's what we're learning here. Living a life of love so that it's God. God is loving others through me. And we've heard so many stories in this series about how that happens. And here's another one. I got an email this week from someone who was telling me about our uh, Apples of Gold ministry with our women's ministry. The email says, let me just quote the email. Talks about our apples of gold, a program where the older women teach the younger women how to love God and love their husbands and love their families. And they also teach them different uh, uh, cooking and homemaking skills and hospitality that many women in our busy society haven't always had time to study and master. And this person wrote, I felt so loved by the wonderful older Christian women through our church in this program. Not only do they show the younger women God's truth by example and teaching and experience, but they pray so fervently for the women in their group. You can just tell that they are praying for you. You feel it so strongly. I came away feeling so blessed by their love. I really believe that they are following John's words and that Jesus would be pleased. That's it right there. Jesus coming to love others through us. That's the real Jesus. That's the real Jesus. Yeah. Do you know him? Do you? And, and, and I'll tell you, the leaders of our Apples of Gold would, would be the first to tell you that it, you know, serving and mentoring has, has not been a burden. That's what John talks about. John says in 1 John chapter 5, Verse three, this is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Hmm. Do you know this love? Would you like to know this love? This, this could be the day where you walk out of this room knowing the love of God who came in the flesh as Jesus, 
from heaven to earth to live the life he should have lived, to die the death he should have died. And now, who wants to live a life of love through you, you're wired. This is what you're made for. This is God has created you so that he can live in you and so that you can love others. That's it. That's it. He is the reason for life. I want to invite you to that community, that community of love. See those towels up there? I want to invite you to take a towel. I want to invite you here in the next few minutes to do business with God. I want to invite you to receive Jesus as your king, as your sovereign, as your monarch. To let him do for you, to believe and trust that he's done for you what you can never do for yourself. And now, being his faithful subject, you let him love through you. We become children of God by receiving and believing. And if you want to do that, you can do that this morning. And then, at the end of the service, I want to invite you to make your way up here and take a towel. And we'll go back and we'll put on a baptistry robe and we will declare what you have surrendered to Jesus in the waters of baptism, which symbolizes and demonstrates that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I receive him as my king and I want him to love others through me forever. That's what I'm inviting. That's what I'm calling you to do this morning. I'm calling you to be invited into the community of love. Someone wrote, To be a Christian is to be invited into the community of love we call the Trinity. You know in the the Trinity you never find one person who's grumpy. You never find a person who's taking love but not giving it out. No one's critical, no one's cynical, no one's jaded. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit live in absolute unity of love. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son gives glory to the Father. The Spirit knows the thoughts of God and prays to God uh, for our sake. The Father has all authority, yet he gives that authority to the Son, and the Spirit speaks on God's authority. And meanwhile, the Son lives in absolute obedience to the Father, for the Son does only what he sees the Father doing, and the Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. There's this absolute beauty and community and harmony of love that's in the Trinity, our triune, our three-in-one God. In the Trinity, there's no jealousy, no politics, no power plays. The reason why we have a hard time finding good analogies for the Trinity is that we constantly live in such broken relationships that it's hard for us to imagine a community in which there's constant joy and creativity and each person pouring himself out for the other's. This sounds crazy, the author says this, listen. It sounds crazy, but I think it would be accurate to say, God is a party, and you're invited. You're invited. So come. Thank you that your word 
is absolutely clear on who the real Jesus is. The real Jesus. God come in the flesh to die for us. And God, through the Holy Spirit, lives a life of love through us. This community of love, ever expanding, not just for later in heaven, but now. The kingdom is now. Father, I pray that your spirit-filled and Jesus-led kingdom here may influence our community so that people would taste and see that you are good. And I pray that if there's someone, anyone here in this room this morning, right here, right now, who would like to become a child of the kingdom, that they would do business with you right now by believing you and receiving.